Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true That's message of the gospel. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servants, on our behalf, and who also told us of your love and spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people and the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the gift of your word for this passage from Colossians and ask now that you might illumine our minds and hearts, that these words from the Bible we just heard read, that the words that are now proclaimed might be by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word for us. Equip us, we pray, direct us to faithfulness. May we know your will and may we do it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So these past four months, I've interacted with computers more than I ever have before in my life. Maybe that has been your experience, too. Even at this very moment, we are interacting with one another through computer screens and cameras. And it's amazing to me the amount of information that is now just a mouse click away thanks to computers, computers as small as the smartphones we hold in our hands. Instead of having to go to a library to research a subject, now we can go to Wikipedia. In fact, there's a host of digital libraries available only a mouse click in milliseconds away. You can do a Google search on any subject and find more articles than you could ever read on precisely the subject of your interest. Want to brush up on the news, find out what's going on in the world, Lord, have mercy. Not one paper, but thousands and dozens of different languages are there before your eyes. Astounding, the ocean of information that is now available to us. But all this information presents a challenge, a pressing challenge today. 
Theodore Rozak wrote about this dilemma back in the 1980s when computers were starting to ascend more rapidly and occupying a more significant spot in American culture with computers. He argued we're now living with a, quote, glut of unrefined, undigested information flowing from every medium around us. Rozak warned of how computers can present to us, if we're not careful, a statistical blizzard that numbs the attention. It can overwhelm us with a glut of obfuscating data. I love the imagery Rozak uses for haven't you felt that way before? That all the information available to you right before your eyes on your computer screen or only a mouse click away, it can feel like a blizzard and make it makes it thereby difficult to see. A problem with a blizzard is it blurs our vision. We aren't able to see the path forward or find that way home. It can leave us disoriented. It can numb our attention. For how do you possibly take in all the information available to us and, and somehow make sense of it? And so it pushes before us an ancient question and pushes it on us with new urgency. What is the point of seeking out information? Why gain knowledge? This is a vital question when there is so much information out there readily available to us. What is the, the filter in navigating the reams of data before our eyes? What is the end of knowledge? Well, one answer to that question, what is the end of knowledge, can be summed up in a single word, power. The end of knowledge is power. Scientia potentia est, that is the famous Latin rendering of the phrase, knowledge is power. And that phrase shows up in the writings of English philosophers like Francis Bacon and Thomas Hobbes from the 16th and 17th centuries. You can find that notion and even that quote earlier in Islamic thought and the sayings of Imam Ali published in the 10th century. But why stop there? Go back even further still to the book of Genesis and the story it tells of primordial humanity. In Genesis, we read of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that Adam and Eve were instructed by God not to eat from. Surely, knowledge was broadly available to them, knowledge beyond just that tree. They could see the world around them, study creation and learn from it. They could interact with God and learn from God what God might have in mind for them. But this tree, this forbidden tree promised a different kind of knowledge. It was a knowledge the serpent described like this. If you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. God-like power. That was the temptation we read Adam and Eve succumbed to, and they ate from that tree. In the end, is the end of knowledge simply power? As it appears to have been for Adam and Eve back in that time of temptation, do we gain knowledge simply for our own economic power in the form of a lucrative career in a big bank account? Is that what we hope our children will get through their schooling? 
Do we learn in order to gain influence so people will listen to us, where ideas will have an impact so we can feel, well, a little more important? Do we learn to gain political power where we can influence public policy in our favor? Much good can be done with a big bank account, with influence, with political power. But if our end in seeking such things is for our own gain, that we might be equal to God, the scriptures proclaim that is a spiritual dead end. That is something that is lifted up in scripture time and again as an idol, a golden calf, something that will fail to satisfy the hunger in our soul. What is the end of knowledge? If not power, another prominent answer in times both ancient and modern to that question is pleasure. Back in the time when the letter to the Colossians was written, a prominent school of thought in the Greek intellectual tradition was Epicureanism. In the book of Acts, we read how Paul encountered some Epicureans in Athens and how he debated with them. Epicureans believed that the end of knowledge was not personal power. Instead, they believed it was pleasure. Now, it wouldn't be fair to call the Epicureans true hedonists, for it wasn't simply sensual, physical pleasure that they were lifting up. They focused more on intellectual pleasure. They emphasized not luxurious living, but simple, sustainable pleasures. But it was pleasure that they lifted up as the end of knowledge, pleasure in the form of freedom from pain, pleasure in the form of tranquility of the mind. Epicureanism fell out of favor back in the third century, but then knew a resurgence after the enlightenment, and I would argue is very much with us today. Like power, pleasure too, if it's our ultimate end is doomed to disappoint, just as Jesus directed his disciples away from power as an end for our striving, just as he counseled them not to be like the Gentiles where power is sought to lord it over others, just as he counseled them to seek instead humility, to know that in the kingdom of God the last shall be first. So he told his followers when it comes to pleasure, you might need to let that go. In fact, he said to his followers, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Now, nothing wrong with pleasure. Pleasure can be wonderful, but when it is our ultimate end, it becomes again that thing we call as Christians an idol. So if not power and if not pleasure, what is the end of knowledge? Well, here's how today's text from Colossians, the one that Thomas Cano read, addresses that question. We read the voice of the Apostle Paul speaking these words to the Christian community in Colossae. We have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, now, why does Paul yearn for these saints, these individuals who have known the grace of Jesus Christ and been brought into Christ's kingdom? Why does he yearn for them to be filled with knowledge and wisdom and understanding? So that, the passage goes on, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit 
in every good work and grow in the knowledge of God. Knowledge, according to this passage from Colossians, is not about prominence and power, and it's not about pleasure, physical or mental pleasure. The end of knowledge, the so that in this passage, is that believers might live lives worthy of the Lord, bear fruit and grow in knowledge of God. Now, this is not a radically new conception of knowledge's goal. In the Jewish tradition, wisdom was not about simply amassing information. It was meant to lead to right living, to walking in the right paths. We see that in the book of Proverbs and other wisdom writings in Scripture. From the Dead Sea Scrolls recovered from the Qumran Caves, we know of a Jewish community that was still in existence around the time we imagine Colossians may have been written. And for that Qumran community, we know from these Dead Sea Scrolls, as they understood that knowledge led to faithful living. Knowledge of God meant living according to God's will. The very word for knowledge used in today's passage in Greek, epignosis, scholars will argue has within it the assumption that action is a part of it. It's not just knowing the good. Epignosis implies enacting the good. As Paul speaks to the believers in Colossae, as he addresses those who have been, quote, rescued from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Paul prays that the end of their knowledge might be lives worthy of the Lord, lives that bear fruit. Now, you'll recall Jesus famously crystallized the faithful life by citing a great commandment in two parts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On the, this commandment hang all of the law and the prophets, you recall Jesus saying. So if you take that shorthand approach to describing the life of faith, you could say the end of knowledge for believers is one word. The end of knowledge is not power or pleasure. It is love. Love is the end of knowledge. The Apostle Paul writes in Corinthians, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. In today's passage, when the Apostle Paul wants to lift up one quality of this church in Colossae, one element in which faithfulness and the fruit of the Spirit is shining in these Colossian believers, what does he point to? He points to their love, their love in the Spirit. Epaphras, he writes, has made known to us your love in the Spirit, love at work in the Colossian church. That's what Paul celebrates and savers. Love is the fruit. Love is the goal. Love is the end of knowledge. Now, this can be a challenging word for us Presbyterians. Now, why do I say that? Presbyterians, certainly Presbyterians like me, we love learning. And if we're not careful, we can end up focusing in on learning for, well, learning's sake. When I've taken the Gallup Strength 
finder inventory. One of my top strengths is learner. I love learning, love garnering information, love discovering new ideas. I delight in it. Perhaps you do too. Presbyterians often do. We value the life of the mind. And on one hand, I love that about our tradition, but there is a temptation with that charism specifically, the temptation to forget what knowledge is for. You've heard, of course, of how Presbyterians will tend to tackle a problem. If you've got a big problem as Presbyterians, what do you do? You study it. You form a study group. You come out with an extended study paper on it and present it to denominational gatherings. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with study. Study can be good, but let's remember that our call as believers is not simply to study so that we have information. The study is meant to equip us so as better to love. We learn so as to love. One podcast I will often listen to is called The Knowledge Project. Maybe you have heard it too. And it features long interviews with successful researchers and authors and musicians and physicians and investors. And much of what they share is fascinating and human. And I love some of the ideas and mental models the podcast presents. They are intriguing to consider. In the first episode I listened to, Annie Duke, a poker champion, spoke of lessons she learned from playing the game professionally. She spoke of learning to make decisions based on not on certainty, for certainty often is not available. She tells of how poker taught her to make decisions based on probability, to think in terms of bets. She told of developing systems of processing lessons learned so that after each game of poker, she might learn from her mistakes and become better as a result. And the learner in me was terribly interested. But then the interviewer asked Annie Duke just a bit about the ethics of poker. He approached it so gingerly and gently, and it was in the later part of the interview. And he sort of asked, have you considered at all the ethics of poker, and she was speechless. She didn't know how to respond to that. The ethics of poker, the question of how you relate to this activity that is tied, frankly, to a host of addictions and to the impoverishment of many. The ethics of poker, how do you deal with the imagery poker presents of one person amassing wealth at the impoverishment of others? How do you deal with the ethics of poker? And and it was hard for her to engage in that question. And it left me asking, ah, knowledge can be of great value, but what is the knowledge for? For Christians, for those who've known forgiveness of sins, for those who know the grace of Jesus Christ, for those in whom the Holy Spirit is at work, the end of knowledge is love. So wealth of literature on racism today, and I give thanks to God for it. But I hope we approach it not with the end of simply amassing information. I hope we approach it with the end of love, that studying might equip us to better love our neighbor and love a God who cares about justice and act as a result. 
There's so much information about COVID-19. How do we sift through it all with the lens of love? We look at it to find out how to live faithfully, when and where to wear masks and to practice social distancing and when and how to reopen or not reopen so as to love our neighbor faithfully. Study can lead to love. As we think of our children's education, what's our hope for them, whether it's in person or remote or some hybrid? Not that they simply have a successful career, I hope, or have power and influence. We yearn as believers that from their knowledge, they might better love and serve others in the world, each one of them in their own special way. They can do that in a career. They can also do that in their families, in their friendship networks, as citizens of a nation, in their artistic output, as good neighbors in a local community. Should love be on our minds as we think, as we talk about our children's education? And speaking of education, if the end of knowledge is love of neighbor and love of God, Let us be sure to keep before our eyes not simply the news and not simply the world around us. Let us hold before our eyes and consciousness the scriptures that reveal to us God's will and the Savior who brings us new life and forgiveness. If all we place before our eyes and consciousness is the news, for example, we'll know a lot more than we did before about Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi but will not grow in the knowledge of God's will for us. We need scripture for that, lest we find ourselves asking what the poet T.S. Eliot famously asked. Where is the knowledge lost in the information? Where is the knowledge lost in the information? And where is the wisdom lost in the knowledge? In looking at scripture, we look to gain knowledge that might lead us to love. And so we go to passages like today's text from Colossians, not simply to amass or collect data. We go to the Bible to love more faithfully. For in the scriptures, we find that Savior who loved us and by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, equips us to go and love the world. Friends, I hope you never stop learning. I hope I never stop learning. I hope we don't lose our love for learning, especially as Presbyterians. I hope we don't lose our intellectual curiosity, our quest for knowledge. I pray that it might bless the world, but for that to happen, let us never forget why we learn. We learn so as to love. So let us learn and let us love. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Mm -hmm.